Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure, maybe with a little extra work, make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord because we're going to talk about government. That always seems to upset some people one way or the other. But we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about government. But before we do that, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking in the light, walking by the Spirit. And so if we need to, we need to confess sin. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. And then that gives you the opportunity to confess sin. Sin is between you and the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. So let's pray. Our Father, as we look at the world around us, we see that human race continues to turn its back on you. We see a continued suppression of truth in unrighteousness, redefining truth, making truth nothing. All kinds of things are going on. We witness extraordinary bad behavior among many of the leaders that we elect. We see panic, we see fear, we see fear-mongering, we see corruption, but we know you're in charge, and so we can relax, we can trust in you. We've read through the scriptures, and we know that this is always the trend of every government, of every nation, all through history, and so there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. But Father, for us, it's new, so we need to trust in you, we need to learn to relax, and we need to just focus our attention on you and pray and especially as uh, we are encouraged by Paul in First Timothy chapter 2 to pray for our leaders, pray for all the leaders from those in Washington to those in Austin to those in Houston or whatever city we may find ourselves in, to pray that they might wake up, that they might be alert, that our leaders will have wise counselors, that you would work in the lives of those that are responsive to strengthen them, to encourage them. So many of our congressmen, senators, others are believers, and they are under incredible pressure every day. And we pray for them that you would strengthen them and encourage them and bring into their um, lives men, Bible teachers, who will focus them on the truth. Father, we pray that we might continue to live our lives in peace, going about our mission to 
tell people about Jesus Christ and the gospel, the only hope that we have, the only certainty that we have is your word. The only stability we have is your truth. So, Father, as we look at your word tonight to help us understand how we should select leaders and what the real issues are, we pray that you guide and direct our thinking. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if any of you ever read the Babylon Bee. This is a Christian satirical site, but sometimes the things they say are so close to the truth, if not right on the truth, that many times you find uh, people going out and fact-checking them uh, on uh, one of the uh, fact-checking websites, and they often, those fact-checkers often take it as something that is being said uh, in truth rather than in jest. But I saw the one yesterday after the announcement was made that um, uh, Vice President Biden had selected to be his vice president in this race, uh, Kamala Harris, that um, uh, there was a thing that they put out that she's so happy to accept the offer that she has been chosen solely on the basis of her race and her gender. And it is sad today that that speaks a lot as to what's going on because in our world it's become influenced so much by Marxism. And what Marx did was he makes everything about class. And so that's been transformed with a different term, identity. So everybody's part of some group. And if you're part of, uh, if you're a woman, you're in that group and you're supposed to vote a certain way and act a certain way. And that totally violates the first divine institution of, of uh, personal responsibility and individual responsibility, or if you're a certain ethnicity, you have to vote a certain way. And it's so interesting that all of the advocates of this, and I don't think they really believe it now that, that as, as Lenin called them useful idiots, I think they buy into it because they don't know any better, but the real leaders know that ultimately if they are successful in bringing about a revolution in this country, then they know that they'll be the ones in power. And that's what always happens in, in these uh, revolutions is that are anti-God is that they replace the authority of law with their own personal tyranny. And... Um, and so it's all about convincing people that they should vote a certain way because they're of the class they're in. And so they're, if they're in an oppressed class and they have to act a certain way, and that's just so demeaning and condescending and patronizing. I, I don't know why more people don't wake up to it, but they don't. And that's because people are really blind to the truth. Well, we've been studying these issues related to voting, and the way to vote is not to vote specific issues, in my opinion. You're not to vote in the sense of looking and saying, well, look, this governor, this mayor, this president wants to uh, raise taxes on X, or he's going to lower taxes on Y. And if they promise to lower taxes, I'll vote for him, and won't life be better for me? And I remember as a young teacher... My first year of teaching, I think, was a gubernatorial election in Texas, and that's back when uh, we only had functionally one party, and that was the Democrat Party. 
and the uh, man who was running for governor at the time was promising a raise to teachers, and so it didn't matter how terrible the rest of his ideas were. They were going to vote for him because they wanted a raise. And I was about 23 years, or I, was, I think I was 22. I was a young teacher. And I thought, how self-centered. Yet that's how a lot of people vote. They vote on what is going to benefit them. They don't understand the basic principles. And so it's not about a specific issue related to foreign policy or domestic policy or personality or any of those factors. You shouldn't ever vote for anybody because they are a certain gender or they are a certain ethnicity. In fact, that is this, one of the most demeaning things you can do is say, well, I'm just going to pick you because... Uh, you're black or you're Hispanic or you're a uh, Native American, whatever it may be, because you're saying, I don't really care how bright you are. I don't really care about your ideas or your contributions or anything. I'm just going to vote for you on something superficial like your gender or your ethnicity. And that's not what we should do. We should vote for people because of their ideas because of their the policies that they will enact, because of their core belief system. And, of course, one of the problems we face today is that there's a number of people who have no core belief system, and they will say anything, and they will align themselves with anybody just to have power, just to be in a position. But as Christians, we need to vote on the basis of biblical principles, and we need to be able to go into the Bible in order to demonstrate those, and that's what we're doing. We started off looking at what a Judeo-Christian worldview was and how it impacted our founding fathers, how it was necessary to think in terms of a biblical worldview in order to truly understand uh, the tremendous value that we have in our Constitution and in our Bill of Rights. That doesn't mean it's perfect. No system of law, no government is perfect because in a fallen world, they will always come up short. There will always be leaders who have bad ideas as well as good ideas that will have bad personalities or good personalities that will have problems with morality uh, but the, it's their ideas, it's their policies that really, really matter when everything is said and done. What are they going to do in terms of organizing the, the country, solving core issues and move, moving us forward? And so we looked at the worldview that we should have and that hopefully our leaders have. And in a world that is moving so rapidly towards paganism, more and more and living in a world where where we're dominated by a culture of paganism, we have to choose somebody who's closest to what they should be. And oftentimes they are not the kind of person that we would like, but they are the closest to an understanding of a biblical, uh, a biblical worldview. And then we looked at, we're looking at these divine institutions. We have looked at them as the real foundations, the biblical foundations that God built into society to give us stability, to provide for the preservation, the, protect, the protection, the preservation, of and the propagation of the human race. These are the social orders, Psalm, uh, 
Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, these are the foundations of social order. These are social laws. And we've looked at the first three, individual responsibility, marriage, and family. Now, the thing that's important to understand here is that this happens before Adam sins. This happens before the curse comes into human history. This happens before everything is transformed by this horrible thing known as sin. And so God uh, gave these institutions, built this into the f- social framework of uh, human beings in Adam and Eve, and it would be passed on to their children, these three realities and they were designed not to restrain sin because sin didn't exist yet. They were designed to provide for the uh, prosperity of the human race and of the culture. It's designed to promote productivity and to advance civilization. That's what the, these first three are all about. They're, they're positive. They're not within the framework of, of sin. Now we're shifting gears, and we're going to look at the next three. Actually, I've got to change this slide, uh, and I want to separate Israel out in another category. The next two are closely linked in the Bible, and some have put them together, but they're separated by at least 300 years, so I think it is uh, necessary to distinguish them. The first one is the one we'll begin to look at tonight. That is government authority, and it has to do with judicial authority, having a just or righteous uh, society or culture. And it really focuses on the restraint of sin. So those first three had to do no sin. This is what's necessary to have a productive, prosperous civilization. These next two, four and five, restrain sin. They're designed to protect people from sin, sinful people, from criminality, from uh, other nations that would seek to dominate them and tyrannize them and to control them. Israel doesn't do that. Now, the reason I've said, as I've said before, that I put Israel in here is because in Genesis 12, 2, or 12.3, God says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. He doesn't say those believers. Uh, he doesn't say those unbelievers. He, it's, it's for every human being. Whatever the, whoever you are, whatever your beliefs are, whether you're a 100% pagan, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, if you bless Israel, God is going to bless you. If you judge Israel, if you treat them lightly or with disrespect, then God is going to bring, bring judgment up, upon you. So Israel becomes the foundation of what? What's the key important word there in that, in that statement? God says to Abraham, through you, I will bless all nations. So we're going to break six out as the basis for worldwide blessing. So we have three that are going to provide for the advancement of civilization, prosperity, and then we're going to have two that are designed to restrain evil and sin, and then Israel that is the source of worldwide worldwide blessing. So these are the divine institutions as we've studied them that are there as it's not a social construct, not invented by human beings. It is something that God built into the fabric of reality. Now, usually I end these by going to a quote from one of the founding fathers, 
But today I want to begin with one just because of what's going on in the world around us. This is from Daniel Webster who wrote this on or uh, gave, said this in a speech on June 1st, 1837. There is no nation on earth powerful enough to accomplish or our, over, our overthrow, our destruction, should it come at all, will be from another quarter. From the inattention of the people to the concerns of their government, from their carelessness and negligence, I must confess that I do apprehend some danger. I fear that they may place too implicit a confidence in their public servants and fail properly to scrutinize their conduct, that in this way they may be made the dupes of designing men and become the instruments of their own undoing. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we are seeing today. People are either A, willingly ignorant, and ultimately they are because their volitions are involved, and if they haven't learned something, they need to exercise their will and go learn something, some truth about history. But we let things go by, and people just implicitly uh, believe in one political party or another, and neither political party is the party of God. Okay, you have some, one party, I think, that is closer, a lot closer. We'll look at that as we finish because I want to examine each party platform in light of all these standards. Once we establish the standards, we're going to uh, then hold the party platforms up to see which is in line uh, with, with um, the Word of God. So we're going to begin a study tonight on the fourth divine institution, which is uh, government. And I want to start by looking at the, dealing with this basic problem that we have. The basic problem, as we've seen, is sin. Basic problem is that the human, every human being is corrupted by sin. We're born spiritually dead. And apart from being enlightened and following and applying the enlightenment from God's revelation, we're going to continue to promote our own ideas which flow from our own, uh, from our own arrogance, from our own pride, from our own desire to do whatever it is that we want to do. Scripture says, and this is not complimentary, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good, no, not one. These verses are repeated again in Psalm 53, 2-3, and they are quoted in Romans chapter 3. They are an indictment of the human race, that the human race has fallen. We're spiritually dead, alienated from the life of God. We walk in darkness. We do not know the truth. And in Romans 1, 18 to 20, talks about the fact that we have enough of an evidence from the, uh, from the creation to know that God exists, but we are suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. So that's, that's the orientation of human beings. Romans 3.23 goes on to conclude, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this is the basic problem that we have. And the founding fathers clearly understood this, which is one reason they set up government the way they did with three different um, government houses or branches, the legislative, the executive, and the court, and so that no one group would have all the power and so that no one group of people would have all of the power. 
And this is slowly eroding and has been for the last hundred years because no per, no system, even if it was perfect, we're going to see, uh, it's not going to work when you're dealing with fallen fallen human beings. Thomas Sowell, in his masterful work, The Conflict of Visions, which came out in, in 1987, and I uh, have always recommended that, he takes a historical look at what is the core difference between uh, the liberal mindset and the conservative mindset. And he goes back historically, and historically he looks at uh, the contrast uh, between uh, Thomas Godwin, who would be a liberal at the time of the uh, American War for Independence, and Adam Smith, who was in that gen- generation. Adam Smith is the author of the book, The Wealth of Nations, and Adam Smith is considered the father of uh, free markets or capitalism. And so you see this, uh, when you sh- compare their writings side by side, you see this difference, that uh, you can see it together. Just recently, a, a man came out with a book, a Jewish writer, um, Levin, not Mark Levin, another Levin, an Israeli writer, and he does the same thing, but he compares, um, he, he compares uh, uh, Burke with um, he com- who's he? Thomas Paine. So he comes along, and he's going to compare Burke with Thomas Paine. He comes out with the same thing. And what do they conclude? They find that the difference between these two approaches to understanding reality and to making laws are the difference between those who believe that man is perfectible and basically good and that the problem isn't with man's nature. The problem is with his environment, whether it's education or whether it's economics or whether it is uh, some sort of social structure. It's always something secondary rather than the nature of man himself. And the conservatives believe that man is basically bad. He is self-serving. He desires what is best for himself and that that must be controlled and it must be restrained because that is the source of evil. And if you want to get an example of how the uh, the left reacts against uh, anyone who talks about uh, morality and the absolutes of good and evil, think about how they responded to President George W. Bush. After the events of 9-11, he described those who attacked the United States as evildoers. And within just weeks, he began to be vilified by the left. And people just hated him and despised him. And the reason is, it wasn't for a particular policy. It was because he indicated by that that he believed that there was an absolute good and an absolute wrong. There was evil and there was good. And they knew, the thinkers on that side of the aisle knew that that was a serious problem and that could not be allowed to exist in this country. We couldn't have somebody who believed in moral absolutes. And yet that is at the very foundation of the Bible and that is at the very foundation of our Constitution. So what I want to do tonight is look at the Uh, the development of human government in God's plan, and then we'll probably just look at the Old Testament tonight, and then next week we'll get into issues in the New Testament. But we have to understand 
that if we believe the Bible or think we believe the Bible or call ourselves Christians, I don't understand how people can call themselves a Christian and then when they go to the book that tells them about Christ and what Christianity is, they say, well, I don't believe this, I believe that, but I don't believe this, and that can't be right. And, you know, they'll make statements and they'll say, well, I just don't think so-and-so ought to be president because he's, he's mean. Look, Listen to what he said. Well, there are a lot of people who thought Jesus was mean. And when it comes to the end times in the millennial kingdom, there are going to be a host of people who think that Jesus is mean. Because when, people who are operating in an antinomian world where they get to do whatever they want to, when somebody comes along and wants to restrain their self-centeredness and their desire to do whatever they want to do, uh, they're going to perceive that as tyranny. And there's a huge difference between uh, tyranny and restraint of sin and restraint of, of, of evil. So we have to understand that the basic view of the human nature, where, which we've already covered, is uh, directly related to our view of society, our view of economics, our view of law, our view of justice, our view of government, and our view of politics. Now, if we think about the Bible, think about the historical development of the Bible. We go back to Genesis and we take the creation, then we move forward through Genesis 4, 5, and, and then we come to Genesis 6, and God judges the earth at that time. We're going to come back and look at this a little in detail in a few minutes. But God brings judgment on the whole world. He wipes out everybody except for eight people because of what had happened prior, prior to, the, to the flood. And after the flood, he enters into a covenant with Noah, and in that, he's going to give him a command that is going to indicate that he is delegating judicial, a serious judicial responsibility to human beings, the, whether or not to take the life of a person who has committed certain crimes. That is an extremely serious responsibility, yet God will delegate that to Noah. And then just a few hundred years after that, there's an incident that is really an act of rebellion by human beings again at the Tower of Babel, and they unify, and they're really unifying against God, and God then divides the languages, and that's going to be the basis that we see for nationalism, for nations. It's how God established different nations and borders, and this is developed by Paul also in Acts chapter 17. So I think some Christians have never heard this before, and so it's important for us to take a little time with this. So when we come to Genesis chapter 9, after the, the flood, when Noah uh, is given a covenant, God comes down and enters into a unilateral covenant with Noah. A unilateral covenant means that there's not a condition. God says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what your responsibilities are. But it is not going to be broken. It is an everlasting covenant. Actually, if we were to take time to study it, which we have in the past, we would see that the covenant with Noah contains all the basic elements uh, that are related to the original statement in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 with, with uh, Adam and Eve before the fall, and that that all the areas in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 are modified by the judgment on uh, 
creation, on the animals uh, as represented by the serpent, on Eve, and on, on Adam. And so this is a further modification of that original creation covenant, and God makes a promise that he will uh, never judge the earth again by water. And in order to... Um, in order to guarantee that, show his promise is true, he said, I will put my, and what you read in your, in your English text is I will put my rainbow in the sky. But that's not the way it reads in the Hebrew text. The word there for, for rainbow is keshet. Now, in most, in most Hebrew dictionaries, they'll put bow or rainbow, but this is the word for a, a weapon for the bow that shoots arrows that is used in war. And uh, rabbinical tradition takes it that what God is telling them after he has judged the earth so harshly and destroyed everything is he's basically saying, I'm making peace with man, I'm not going to do this again, and I'm going to stick my bow on the wall and stop making war against man. And so we see that bow in the sky. So I thought that was an interesting uh, interesting insight in, into that based, based on that particular word. But in the middle of that covenant, God gives man a new responsibility. He says, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. In other words, this is, goes back, to, picks up the idea of the first divine institution of personal responsibility and accountability, that if someone is guilty of bloodshed, then there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be an accountability. And he says, from the hand of every beast I'll require it. So this isn't limited to human beings. If there's an animal that attacks a human being and kills a human being, then we put that animal down. And in most cases today, that is still practiced. But when it comes to humanity, no, 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 we're not going to have capital punishment. But that's not what God is saying here. He says, he says, from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. So he uses the same language here. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whomever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made men. Now, we all recognize that for the last 60, 70, 80 years, maybe even going back into the late 19th century, there are those who are opposed to the death penalty. They're opposed to the death penalty for all kinds of reasons. It's a political uh, hot button, and I remember when we had the 2000 presidential election, how the liberal media made a big deal about uh, George W. Bush is governor, that there were mo so many more people executed for their crimes in Texas than anywhere else, and they thought that was just absolutely horrible. But we recognize that there's injustice in the death penalty. We'll, we'll grant that, that there have always been injustices in the death penalty, and we need to answer the question, why would God delegate responsibility and give responsibility for executing human beings who commit capital, capital crimes, why would God do that because if he knows how unjust it will be, how unfairly it will be applied, and how many problems there, there will be, and how it will be used and abused by unjust, unfair men 
to tyrannize people. And we can think of all the events down through history of people who were burned at the stake, people who were crucified like the Lord Jesus Christ, people who were uh, gassed in gas chambers or they were hung or they were uh, stood up in, uh, somebody stood them up in front of a firing squad or they gave them a lethal injection or they, uh, they were drawn and quartered and that followed a lot of torture, all of these different things all through human history, and that there were uh, many, many people who were unjustly and unfairly uh, executed, and it was not done with justice. Why in the world would God give this responsibility to man knowing how unfairly man would use it? We need to answer that question before we done. we're done. So we look at the... Uh, at this issue of the death penalty, in order to understand it, we have to understand the historical context. We need to go back to Genesis chapter 4. So turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. And as we saw before, we end Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve being being removed from the garden. God drove them out, according to Genesis 3.24. And he placed... The cherubim, that's the plural. He, there's not one there. There's not two there. There is a an army, probably, of cherubs who circle the Garden of Eden to prevent access to the Tree of Life. And so they have a flaming sword. And when you see this used in Scripture, that means they have the right to take death. They have the power of death. A sword is used to kill, and so the sword is used as a figure of speech for that which it's used for. We, run, we will run into it again when we get to Romans 13, and it talks about government, that God ordained government and gave them the sword. So they have the right to execute people, and they have the right to wage war in protection uh, of their nation. And so this is very much a part of it. But, but let's look at what's going on here in, in these... Just bear with me. Here we go. Genesis 4. Now, we have the story of Cain and Abel. After they leave leave the garden, Eve becomes pregnant. She conceives and she gives birth to her first son and names him Cain. And the name of Cain has to do with acquisition. And so she says, the Lord gave him to me, and I did it with the Lord. And she thinks of Cain as the promise fulfillment of the seed, that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. But she's sadly mistaken as events unfold. But she has a second son named Abel. Now, the difference between Cain and Abel is Cain is a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer, so he's working hard to produce his crops, and he has to fight with the curse and with the thorns and thistles and the weeds and everything else. And Abel is a keeper of the sheep. And uh, if you lived in the American West in the late 19th century, you would probably hear some preacher talk about this and say this is, this is the beginning of the war between the ranchers and the cattlemen and the sheep herders. And that kind of allegory was used a lot and has nothing to do with what the text is teaching. Uh, what we know is that Adam, um, Adam and Eve uh, were taught how to make an animal sacrifice as a 
uh, payment for, for sin, looking forward to the cross. And so uh, Cain is a, is a, his work in the ground. He's a farmer. Abel is keeping the sheep, and he knows what the right procedures are. He, writer of Hebrews tells us he brought a better sacrifice. It was a qualitatively better sacrifice. It wasn't because Cain brought second-class vegetables to, as an offering to God, but that uh, Abel was doing what God intended. And so we're told in verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. See, we, we can look back at this. When Moses is writing this, in about 14, between 1445 and 1400 B.C., the Israelites had already been given all of the guidelines for the sacrifices. They had, they were, this was part of a five section book called the Pentateuch and they had all of that. So when he's using this language here, uh, they would understand that, that this is following correct procedure for a sacrifice to bring the firstborn and bring the fat. Now, what's significant about the fat? And I've, I brought this up before and I've asked this question for years. I asked, uh, we have Jay Collins here. Most of you know Jay, and he's a, a retired veterinarian. And I said, what's so special about the fat? And we talk about this and we talk about that. I've talked to uh, Hebrew guys. I've talked to rabbis. Nobody has said, but the, I finally heard this from someone. I think this is what it's all about. If you have a sheep that is fat, you're prosperous. God has richly provided the grass or the pasture to provide for the sheep, and so they are fat. They're not skinny old scrawny sheep that don't have... God has provided for that. So that's, that's what that is. This is a blessing. This is a good sheep. He's got fat on him, and so the fat, the result of God's blessing, is going to be offered back to God. So God accepts Abel's offering, but God does not, in verse 5, he did not respect Cain in his offering because it wasn't good. And Cain gets angry. So what we see here is that Cain has a series of mental attitude sins. He's angry, he's bitter, he wants uh, to get back at um, uh, Abel, and he is letting his sin nature control the whole situation. And God warns him about this. So God speaks to Cain. So why are you angry? Why, have your, why has your countenance fallen? Now I want you to notice that how frequently God asks questions. It's not because God doesn't know the answer. Remember when God came down, Adam and Eve fixed up their fig, fig leaf clothes and they were hiding from God. And he says, where are you? Well, God's omniscient, omnipresent. He knew exactly where they were. He asked questions to get people to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Jesus did the same thing all through his ministry, asked a lot of questions. So uh, the other day I was having some conversations with, with some people and we're talking about they were trying to work with somebody who was very, very liberal and had ideas but claimed to be a Christian. And I said, just learn to ask questions to help them see what's going on. That's what Jesus did. We're all so impatient, and I'm the king of impatience. I was so impatient that I came out of the womb two months early. So I, I know what impatience is all about. Um, so we get these people who 
need to be have their thinking exposed. But unfortunately, we have a lot of people who don't want to think and they don't want to really answer any questions because they don't want to think about it. But God is asking Cain, now think about this. Why are you angry? What happened here? What's going on? Why are you so upset? Now, we tend to get angry when we don't get our way. That's what God's getting at here. Cain didn't, he wanted to do it his way and to get his way and to be approved and to do something better than Abel, and God rejected his, his sacrifice. And his countenance fallen is he's, he, he's not happy. He's not a happy camper. He is sad, and he is depressed, and he has been rejected by God. And so God warns him and says, if you do well, now that implies if you do it right, now, a lot of people will tell you that, that, that God hadn't revealed the sacrifices yet to Cain and Abel. And so they're both, and there are some, some sacrifices in the Mosaic law where you bring the first fruits of the, of the crop. And so that's not the issue. The issue is just his mental attitude. But it, it's deeper than that. And, of course, when Moses is writing this, it's very, you realize that from Genesis 4.1, until the flood, about 2,006 years goes by if we take the numbers literally. And how much of that time period is covered here? If you look at, at, at Gen- you have Genesis 4, and it trace, you have the episode with Cain and Abel, then you have the descent from Abel and focus on one or two descendants, and then that's it, down to verse 24. And then we learned that Adam and his wife had another son. They had many other sons and daughters, but they had another son named Seth. Chapter 5 is all genealogy, and then chapter 6 we get eight verses. So we have eight verses in chapter 6, and we have, um, we have uh, 24 verses. That usually comes out to 32. 32 verses to cover... How many years? 2,000 years. Think about that. God didn't want us to know a whole lot about what was going on in that time period. We think we've been in the church age since Christ. It's been 2,000 years. And we have a lot of historical records. There have been a lot of people who would lived. And if everybody who has lived between Jesus and now was still, if half of them were still alive, we would have... 20 million people living on, 20 billion people living on the, on the planet. And they had a lot of people that lived on the planet by the time the Noahic flood came. But God's only telling us a few things. He's only giving us about three snapshots to look at. And from that, he's going to show, uh, that's all we need to know to understand the nature of that pre-flood, that antediluvian civilization. And so we have this situation with, with Cain and Abel, and he gives in to his sin nature. God warned him about that. And so what Cain does is he, is he gives in to his sin nature. He's told sin lies at the door. It's crouching like a ravenous lion, and it's going to control you. But you should rule over it. Now, this is an important spiritual lesson. Prior to the cross, they didn't have the means to really, uh, other than just being tough, self-disciplined, uh, you didn't have the means to deal with your sin nature. 
it's still in control, and so it's it's going to control Cain, and he kills Abel. And after that, we see the law of the first divine institution go into effect, which is personal responsibility, accountability, and consequences. So Cain is told by the Lord that there is now going to be a punishment. And verse 10 reads, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth. Now that's not some juju black magic curse. It's not like some witch casting an evil eye on you. It is a judgment. That's the idea. God is the judge. And it's interesting that God is the one who performs justice and judgment on criminals in this post-fall world. So it's very different from the world we live in now. And so God goes on to say in verse 12, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You're going to be a failure as a farmer. And a fugitive and vagabond, you shall be on the earth. You're just going to wander around. You're going to be ostracized. I'm ostracizing you. I'm removing you from your family, and you can't come back. You are banished from your support network. So you're going to have to go somewhere else. Now, people always say, well, where did Cain get his wife? Well, it was one of his sisters. So uh, we don't know if he was married at this time or not, but he is married, and he married his sister. There's not a law against incest uh, until you get to the Mosaic law. And the reason is these are, somebody always asks these questions, so I'm going to answer it. The reason is when Adam, God created Adam and Eve, they had such a rich supply of genetics within them that this isn't a problem being too close together. But the further you go down the, down the line, that genetic pool that each human being has gets more and more diluted until you get down to a point where if you're too close in blood relation, then you're going to have problems with... Um, you know, mental disease, mental problems, uh, deformities, all kinds of other things. And so at that point, there's going to be a law against uh, being too close in your relationship with somebody that you that you marry. So anyhow, we go through this, and Cain is ostracized. He's banished. And, and this must have been extremely serious. We're, we're just not told that much. But look at his response. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I can't do this. I can't handle this. This is too much. And we look at it and we say, well, you know, if I got kicked out of my family and I never had to see him again, well, that might be a good thing. But for Cain, this is, this is horrible. So there's a lot more, I think, involved in this than simply that he's banished from his family. And Cain goes on to say in verse 14, Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive. And this idea that he's concerned about about being hidden from God's face tells us that he was very likely a believer. He's concerned, I will be hidden from your face. That that means I'm not going to have a relationship with you. And if I'm right based on Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, where the traditional interpretation is my spirit shall not strive, that word translated strive is the only used in that verse in the, in the Old Testament. 
but it's used in Akkadian literature, it's used in Canaanite literature, it's used in these these languages that are very close to Hebrew cognate languages, and there it always means abide. And he's not really talking about my Holy Spirit, he's talking about my presence, and his presence was in the Garden of Eden. That was God's garden, and the gar- God's Eden was God's dwelling place, and the garden was planted east of Eden. So God is still adjudicating human crime, I believe, in the, from the garden. That's why he has this army of cherubs around there and keep people from coming out. And so if there were problems, they went to God. Eventually, nobody went to God because they didn't care. So, so Cain can't, doesn't have access to God. That's part of his punishment. And he says, if anyone finds me, they're going to kill me. And the Lord said, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. That's the, that's, God's going to protect him. He's not going to take his life. We don't have capital punishment yet, uh, very, very clearly. And so the Lord set a mark on Cain. That doesn't mean that he had black skin. It doesn't mean he had any of these things people think of, but there was some visible mark, a tattoo, something like that, that people could easily see, and they knew that that set uh, Cain apart. And it was a warning from God that if anybody uh, found him, uh, that they were not to kill him. So capital punishment is prohibited. Then we have the description of what happens with his descendants down to about verse 19, and he has just a real lovely great-great-great-grandson named Lamech who decides to break divine institution number two, and he's going to take two wives, Ada and Zillah, and then he's going to kill a young man because this man somehow uh, injured him, wounded him, and he comes home and he set, brags to his wives, Ada and Zilli, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. He writes a hero song about this. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. So now we have another murder. And he goes on, uh, and then he says, if Cain should be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Uh, he's bragging about this. This is, I, I'm, I'm a great murderer. And so he's, but this is descriptive of the civilization before uh, before the the flood. And we don't get any more information than that. It's not a pretty picture. And then we skip over the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and we come to Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, we've studied this many times in the past, but there may be some people who are, are, are curious about, what is this thing about the sons of God? This is a technical term in the Hebrew. It's B'nai Elohim, translated God, not B'nai Yahweh. Now, B'nai Yahweh is used to refer to Israel in Deuteronomy. But every time you have this phrase in the Hebrew used, sons of Elohim, uh, B'nai Elohim, it always refers to angels. You can look at uh, Job 1 and you, or 1, 6, and you can look at Job 2, 1, and there you have descriptions of the sons of God, a term for angels, uh, coming before God in, in his throne room in heaven. And the idea here is the angels are called sons of God because they don't procreate. 
They don't make baby angels. So every single angel is directly created by God, so he is their their father. And then, uh, so they're all called sons of God, but this includes demons. The fallen angels are also part of the sons, sons of God. And that's what we have here is a group of fallen angels who decided that they wanted to, actually they're carrying out a tactic to try to stop God from saving the world. And they, they have discovered that uh, there's this promise that the seed of the woman is going to destroy their boss, who is Satan. He's going to destroy the seed of the serpent, which is, which is Satan and Satan's followers. And so they understand that the redeemer for the human race has to be fully man. And if they can somehow disrupt or destroy or taint human genetics so that you no longer have true humans anymore, they're half angel, half human, then then the Messiah can't come. So it's an attempt to block God from providing a, a perfect redeemer. It's, um, it's really interesting that um, a couple of, about a month ago, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, fairly well-educated, and he was studying and teaching on this issue, and he, and he said, you know what I've discovered? I've been, I've been doing a lot of research on this, and what I've discovered is that these, the sons of God were, were demons, and they were trying to destroy uh, the genetics of the human race. I said, really? Well, my pastor taught me that when I was about 10 years old, and that was the view he had always held, and that he got something like that from Lewis Berry Chafer. And this guy, really, I've never heard, and this guy's been a pastor for probably about 30 years, and he said, I've never heard anybody teach that before. That's rather sad that nobody teaches that. But anyhow, so this is a situation that there's this demonic invasion. They're lusting, remember, they're fallen angels. They're lusting after the daughters of men, and they want to take them as their wives. And so they do. They have a way to, to uh, uh, take on a human form, a physical, material human form. Some people say, well, a- Jesus said angels never marry or are given in marriage, and so how can they procreate? Well, they had the ability. You have examples in the Bible of angels coming, for example, to Abraham, and they sit down and they eat, and then they sleep. They take on all the... They're able to transform their immaterial body into a physical material body that has all of the characteristics. And if they can eat and sleep and do other things, then I'm sure they they had a way that they could uh, procreate and to uh, make these women pregnant. And so this is a... They're perverting the second and the third divine institutions. And so this is a very evil, wicked, corrupt marriage. Now, I want you to think about that because you've, we've gone through Matthew 24 before with the Olivet Discourse, and there's always a stumbling passage in there when Jesus says that the sign of his coming is that people, when he comes back, people will be marrying and giving in marriage. And people take that to mean everything's normal. And so Jesus coming back at this second coming, well, nothing's normal at the second coming. So we can't interpret uh, Genesis, I mean, Matthew 24 to be t- and, and in the second half to be talking about the second coming. It's got to be the rapture because they're just going about life as normal. 
But Jesus says it's like in the days of Noah. The marrying and giving in marriage in the days of Noah was perverted. It was as horrible as you can possibly imagine because they were doing everything in rebellion against God to produce this this offspring that was half angel. And they're described when you get down into verse 4. This talks about there were giants on the earth in those days, the, the, the Nephilim. So this is a term. And some people make Nephilim a technical term. I think Nephilim is like a term like giants. It is not a technical term. It is for people who... Uh, may have been have giantism or people who were monsters or out of the ordinary, whatever it was, because there are people at the time of uh, of the conquest that are called Nephilim. But everybody but Noah's family gets wiped out during the flood, so none of the Nephilim survived. So whatever's going on later on the conquest cannot be biologically related to these Nephilim. So Nephilim's not a technical term. Some people get really distracted by that. It's just a generic term for uh, some sort of monstrous uh, creation or something. So in 6.3, God says, my spirit shall not, and I think this should be translated abide. I'm not the only one who thinks that. There's many scholars who take it that this is abide based on the cognate languages. My spirit shall not abide with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. God's going to give 120 years of grace. But see, God, God's not going to put up with it anymore because uh, there's, it's so horrible. When you look at verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What are we seeing here between Genesis 4 and Genesis 6? These wonderful little vignettes that we have of Cain and Lamech and the sons of God and the daughters of men. What are we seeing? There's no restraint for criminality. There's no constraint of the sin nature. There's no policeman. There's no, uh, there's no military. There's no organization. There's no group that is, and there's no laws that are go- from nations that are going to restrain the evil of men's heart. And so what God is teaching in this first dispensation is that if you just leave men to their own devices, the result is going to be evil and sin and self-destruction. And so that's the lesson. And so God makes a decision that he will destroy man who he's created from the face of the earth because he's sorry that's just an anthropopathism. God, is, does, God knew exactly what was going to happen from eternity past, and this is just the way that that is expressed so that human beings can understand that, that God is saying, well, we've gone through this part of the experiment, and it didn't work, so now we're going to go to the next form. It's not going to work either. And what we're going to see is every dispensation, every age is another experiment with different circumstances and situations, and it won't work. Government, even even though it's instituted by God, it's going to always have a problem, as we're going to see, and that problem is the sin nature. But God has grace toward us, and so all government will fail until we get to the person who is without sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then we have the flood, the judgment on the earth. Eight people survive, and as soon as they get off the ark, they sacrifice to God. 
and God then gives them this covenant. This is why he institutes the death penalty, is because prior to the flood, there was no restraint for sin. There was murder, there was adultery, all the divine institutions are in rebellion. It is a horrible, horrible situation. And so now God says, I'm delegating responsibility to the human race uh, to take life. Now that is important. Somebody has asked, how do you connect this to government? Well, like we've seen all through these initial chapters of Genesis, you have to really stop and think about it. In order to take a person's life for committing murder, you have to have laws and guidelines for determining a just decision. Are there witnesses? Now, see, this doesn't go into all of that, but we know from the law, and remember, Moses is writing all of that as part of the same document, that if you're a Jew reading that, you're thinking in terms of the other parts of the Pentateuch, and so there are going to be witnesses, and so this is going to be handled in a righteous manner where there are going to be witnesses and there are going to be certain circumstances. There are going to be times when there's accidental cause of death that's going to be distinguished from intentional, uh, what we would call first-degree murder. But there are going to be stipulations. Now, this is the most serious decision a human court can take, is to take the life of a person because the person that they're executing is created in the image of God. That's the reason for this. God says the reason that the murderer's life is forfeited is because he has assaulted and killed somebody who's in the image of God. And that is blasphemy as well as um, an act against a precious life. Every life is valuable. Every life is precious. And so God is saying that that life needs to be taken. That's the most serious decision a human being can make. So that tells us if man is given the responsibility to uh, restrain criminality, then that would, and this is the most extreme form of criminality, then it would include all other forms of criminality. If you're talking about the most egregious crime, then it includes all other crimes. And so this becomes the foundation for uh, human government, and it is a judicial responsibility. And so this becomes the uh, basis, the historic basis for government. Now, the next time we really get into anything related to government is in the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy, which is a reiteration of the law, it is not the law, but it reiterates it. It's Moses' last sermon to the Israelites before he goes up to Mount Nebo and dies, and they go into the land. He says, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you should go. Statutes and judgments. This is law. So when we talk about government, what we're talking about is God, is a, God legitimizes or establishes that, that human beings can create laws and that they have the right to enforce those laws in order to restrain criminal activity. And so we learn from this, and the Founding Fathers learned from this, because they quote all these different passages, that the role, one of the roles of government is to protect citizens' lives and livelihood and possessions and property from criminal activity. 
because the law recognizes the right to own property. Thou shalt not steal. But we have people together today on the radical left. We have Antifa people who've been saying things recently. You see it on their signs that we need to get rid of private property. That's part of the problem. And so they want to, you just follow uh, former Vice President Biden's little little statement that we're going to, you know, let's, let's uh, rebuild the country. That's his slogan has to do with that. Let's rebuild the country. Well, why do we need to rebuild the country? Because they want to get rid of historic America, which was built on the foundation of the Bible. And that's why there's more and more hostility to the Bible. So what we see in the Mosaic Law is that statutes and judgments, uh, these are the ordinances, these are the laws that are uh, how a government is to uh, conduct itself. Their job is to enforce the obedience to those judgments. Uh, he says, I taught you statutes and judgments. You said, the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom. It is wise to be obedient to law and your understanding and in the sight of people, so, so, uh, peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. See, God's plan for Israel was you're going to go into this land and you're going to apply the law and it's going to provide more freedom and more stability and more prosperity than any other country in the world. And when these people and their caravans are coming through, they're going to see what's happening here and that's going to be a testimony to my grace and to the importance of the rule of law where there's freedom and individual responsibility, where marriage and family are functioning correctly. So this, the law is what defines righteousness in a human environment. That's what makes a good government. It's righteous according to God's standards. I mean, Proverbs 14.34 says, righteousness exalts a nation. As we've studied, that word righteousness relates to God's character. His is the absolute reference point for right and wrong, for good and evil. But sin, sin, that is an act of rebellion, is a reproach to any people, rebellion against righteousness. So Proverbs sixteen twelve. it is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. So God is not saying that kings can do whatever they want to do. Uh, this is, was the idea of the divine right. Uh, I spent some time today going back and reading uh, John, John Locke, and he was critiquing the divine right, uh, the divine right of kings argument, and that was presented in his day, and that was the view that the Stuart kings had, James VI, Charles I, Charles II, and their view of the divine right is kings were above the law, and kings could do whatever they wanted to to whomever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to. And that was the situation. See, George III was picking up on that, going back to that idea during the time of his reign. So it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established, it's stabilized by righteousness. Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. That has to be the ultimate reference point if you're going to talk about righteousness or justice. Somebody wants, I believe in social justice. Okay, where do you get your idea of right or wrong? Where do you get your thoughts? What's the ultimate reference point? It has to be God. Everything else vacillates. Mercy and truth go before your face. Psalm 11, 
7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. God defines righteousness for us. His countenance beholds the upright. He loves, Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now, in the law of Moses, we read, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. This is just one of the many statutes that define righteousness, righteousness and righteous behavior in the courts, in judgments. Don't follow a crowd to do evil. Don't go along with majority opinion. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Uh, you have to understand, and you, uh, a judge has to be willing to stand for objective truth and make those right decisions no matter what the pressure is uh, from the masses. Uh, verse 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So you don't benefit the poor, you don't benefit the righteous. Leviticus 19 says the same thing. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. One standard for everybody. It doesn't matter whether they're important, unimportant, whether they are rich or poor, whether they're old or young, whether they're black, white, uh, brown, yellow, whatever, uh, whether they're man or woman, it is the same standard for everybody. Proverbs twenty nine fourteen: the king who judges the poor with truth has to be truth. You don't give them the benefit of the doubt because they're poor, because their problem is not with their financial or economic situation. That's not the cause of a person's sin. The sin nature is, and personal responsibility is, so the throne will be established if you judge the poor with truth, and, and it's all the same. Now, I'll wrap this up pretty quickly. The problem we have in Scripture, we studied this before, and the problem we have in life is either too little government or too much government. Too little government is the example in the book of Judges. Two times in the book of Judges, the writer says, in those days there was no king in Israel. There's no absolute authority. They've rejected God. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Moral relativism. It destroyed Israel. Their culture is on the verge of collapse by the end of the book of Judges. It's only by the grace of God that God is going to send a prophet, Samuel, who eventually will bring about a righteous king and anoint a righteous king who is David, and that's the story of 1 Samuel. But relativism, this is anarchy. When everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, that violates things. But then... At the time of Samuel, in the early part of 1 Samuel, we saw that the people rejected him, and they reject God's plan, and they reject uh, Samuel's sons because they're ne'er-do-wells. And so they come to the king, and uh, they come to Samuel and say, we want God to give us a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. And so... Samuel takes it personally, and he goes off, and he cries out to God, and God says, it's not about you, Samuel. See, that's Samuel's sin nature getting in there. It's not about you, Samuel. It's about me. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And this is, you tell them about what's going to happen. And so 1 Samuel 8, uh, 11 to 16 was a passage that the founding fathers frequently referenced because it talks about the problem with too much government. 
Uh, there'll be taxation. Uh, God warned the Jews, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. So he's going to start drafting everybody into doing what he wants them to do, and they can't live their life and enjoy their own liberty and produce in terms of whatever God has given them. He's going to appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties. He's going to, in other words, he builds a big army. He will set some to plow his ground, reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war. Notice everything is his ground, his harvest, his weapons of war. All the power goes to the king. Verse 14, he'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards. He's going to have uh, greater taxation. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officer. Now, remember, there's already two other tithes every year, tithes every year, and one that's every third year. So it's an increase of taxation. He'll take your male servants, your female servants. In other words, uh, you're not going to be able to prosper because he's taking everything from you. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it just goes on. That's the problem. Now, some people have taken the mistake and said, well, you go back and you look at the Mosaic Law, it's not right. Well, that's not what Paul said. In Romans seven twelve. he said, therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just is good. So the law was good. It's the people that had the problem. What God is teaching through history is the problem isn't government. The problem isn't your family. The problem isn't your circumstances, your education, your economic environment, the color of your skin. The problem is how you're responding to whatever these circumstances are. The problem is your sin nature. The problem is your will and that you're corrupt and you're making bad decisions. That's the problem. So the law is good. We're talking about the Mosaic Law. Some people think government is inherently bad, but God instituted government in Genesis chapter 9. And when Jesus Christ returns as the messianic king of Israel and establishes his kingdom, the government, Isaiah 9, 6 says, the government will be upon his shoulder. And those who rule and reign with him are going to be part of the government. See, there are a lot of Christians who say, well, I don't want to get involved in politics because politics is bad. Now, politics as it's practiced by some people is bad because we live in a corrupt world. But Jesus is going to come back as the king, and we're going to rule and reign in his administration, so we're going to be involved in politics. But it's going to be in perfect environment, and we're going to be sinless. Isaiah 9-7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Okay, so there is a perfect government. The problem is that between... Genesis 4 and Revelation 20, it never really works because those in government are corrupt sinners. And that's why our country was built with these checks and balances, which have slowly eroded to try to prevent that level of corruption. Now, as we wrap up, I just want to remind you what's going to happen at the end. After the Lord returns, he will establish his kingdom on the earth. The first thing that happens is that they're going to, there's going to be an angel from heaven who brings the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He's going to lay hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. That's the serpent from Genesis 3, who is the devil and Satan and will bind him for a thousand years. That means nobody can say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. 
you can't blame the devil. You can't blame education because it's a perfect government. So Jesus Christ is going to provide a perfect government. You cannot blame your socioeconomic status or any of these other things that Marxists and socialists today want to blame because what they are saying is the reason we have problems is because it's we got to fix the education system we got to fix the law we got to get rid of the constitution we have to change everything we have to build a new country because uh, people are really good we just have a problem with all of our social structures and we got to fix them and that's not the solution. The Bible says the problem, even under the perfect environment or almost perfect environment of the millennial kingdom, that there's going to be a massive rebellion against the perfectly righteous rule of Jesus at the end. We're told in Revelation 27, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. He's not going to get a few thousand to go against Jesus. He's going to get a a huge number. Millions and millions and millions of people are going to be on Satan's side against Jesus because they're born during the millennial kingdom with sin natures. And they don't want to be responsible. That's the essence of this sin nature. It's all about me, and I don't want to be responsible. And so they're rebelling against Jesus. So you think we got a problem today? Well, it's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the future. James Wilson, who was a great believer, one of the signers of the Constitution, said, Government, in my humble opinion, should be formed to secure and to enlarge the exercise of the natural rights of its members, that is, their freedom and responsibility. And every government which has not this in view as its principal object is not a government of the legitimate kind. So we'll close with that quote, and then next time we'll come back and see what the New Testament teaches about government. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening, to understand how clear your word is, and that the real problem is the human heart that is deceptive and wicked above all things who can know it, that we need your grace, we need redemption, we have forgiveness in Christ, and yet we will never be able to provide a perfect government, a perfectly righteous system, because human beings are not righteous and we're not good. And therefore, we can't have perfection in this world. It just won't happen. But, Father, we have so many people today who are deceived by Satan. He's blinded their eyes. And we pray that you would open their eyes and that you would use us to open the eyes of some by teaching the truth, by giving them the gospel, by asking them questions, and that you would use that to wake them up. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.